We are back for another edition of Talking Foosball Direct, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I'm your host, Matt Herman. This week, we're easing into that old pair of slippers, well-worn, warm, and maybe if we're honest, maybe a little bit threadbare. They are the Bayern 10-year-old championship edition. With me on the other end of the line is Louis Ambrose. How's the fit of your slippers over there? They're old and I'd like to change them for a new pair. Yeah, fair enough. I think outside of a, a, a hard core of support, you know, not just in Munich, but around the world, this is a global club. I think that there is a pretty big consensus among Bundesliga fans that 10 years might be uh, long enough. I don't know if we'll get their wish. But we got a lot to talk about. Obviously, Bayern's big title-winning win against Dortmund in the Klassiker. We'll be uh, back with the rest of uh, Match Day 31, the rest of Match Day 31, before we uh, take a quick break. Please do subscribe to the pod. Leave us a five-star rating if you can. And uh, consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. we got lots of timeless content over there. Be right back. Here comes part one of Talking Foosball Direct, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day 31. This was, you know, as far as the Bundesliga marketers are concerned, it's a very special week. It is classicer week that we just saw go by. I just got finished uh, a couple of hours ago watching the Bundesliga highlights program in which they staged an absolutely naff segment of Robert Lewandowski and uh, Erling Haaland ostensibly playing a game of high-stakes poker uh, against they- each other. They showed this on Sky in Germany before the game on uh, on Saturday as well. My, my, my. <laughs> they couldn't have filmed it in a way that was more obvious that they weren't in the same room as each other. I know. I I know. <laughs> it was quite an achievement. Uh, okay, so, but back to the real matters at hand. This, of course, was Bayern's chance to take the title or, you know, Dortmund's chance to keep their very slim title hopes alive, and we all know how it turned out. It was Bayern winning 3-1. That rounds out a full decade for the Rekordmeister. They now have won the league 10 years running. Kind of an odd game, I thought, with quite a few twists and turns. The home side, they they picked off Beifa Bay a couple of times on the break in the first half. They really looked like they were just superior in terms of sharpness, concentration, etc. A lot of folks were proclaiming it done and dusted at halftime, but Dortmund did get back in with a, a 53rd minute Emre John PK. And if referee Daniel Siebert had uh, whistled the way he decided later on that he should have, we might have been talking about a different contest. Just to fill you in on this, Kind of unusual for a referee to come out to speak so definitively about his uh, performance in this way. Uh, Zebert said he should have shown a yellow card to Benjamin Pavard for a, a studs-up challenge that caught Julian Brandt. This was a few minutes before the tying goal. And then six minutes after John's goal, Zebert reckons that he should have awarded another penalty for another challenge from Pavard. As it happened, he missed both of those calls, and Bayern got the goal that they needed to seal the result in the 83rd minute. Just to get this issue out of the way real quick, how decisive were these decisions from Zebrit, you think, Lewis? Yeah, I have a biased black and yellow tinted Twitter timeline, but they definitely thought that Pavard got away with the tackle firstly. And I saw claims for for a red card, and I think maybe a red card 
you could see a red card given for it. I don't think it necessarily is like it has to be a red card. Uh, the second one, the the penalty that wasn't given to Jude Bellingham, I was really surprised that that wasn't given. And I think more than any other, as I say, as a, as a sort of as a Dortmund fan, like this was not a game that was tense. This was like, I've never seen a game with less intensity and I include every super cup game between the two sides. It's often at the Allianz Arena, the intensity is only coming from one side and they score four or five, sometimes even six goals. But it felt like there was not any from either side. I mean, Bayern, I think their two goal lead had come from two shots after like 40 minutes when when does that ever happen and it, that didn't feel like it was two shots because Dortmund was suffocating them and not allowing them into the game it felt like two teams that really I mean that Dortmund with a lot of injuries and Bayern knowing that if they didn't win on Saturday that they have ostensibly nothing to play for for the rest of the season anyway in any other competitions too it was a really strange game I thought and then, yeah, kind of picked up a bit as Dortmund got a, a penalty out of nowhere, the first one. And I don't know if the game increasing suddenly in pace and intensity caught Daniel Siebert out. And maybe that was what happened. Maybe he wasn't quite on the ball. Yeah, the, the second one, I was really surprised. I was surprised by the discussions on television afterwards, trying to explain away. I feel like TV commentators and pundits fall into the trap of trying to explain why the ref has given a certain decision sometimes instead of saying which decision should have been given. So on Sky in Germany, we received a few fangled explanations for why a penalty wasn't given, like Benjamin Pavard got the ball. And the answer was like, yeah, he did, after he'd kicked Jude Bellingham. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah the commentary crew on ESPN did the same and then had to look at the tape and be like, oh, actually, did he kicked him first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know. I, I guess that I guess that, that maybe was the reasoning from from the, the Kona Keller and, and the VAR check. Maybe they just saw the contact with the ball and, and didn't put the timeline in order and, and look at it closely enough or from the right angles to see a proper view of it. Yeah, I mean, Marco Rosa said after the game as well that it was a game where Dortmund should have, really should have had two penalties. But ultimately, I think the first half tells you everything you need to know that if Dortmund had had a second penalty, and if Dortmund had scored a second penalty, and if Dortmund had come away from Munich with some sort of result on Saturday as well, I don't think anyone really would have been that bothered if this had ended 3-0 to Bayern or 3-2 to Dortmund, having been 2-0 down. I think on a professional level, players would have been annoyed and fans would have been kind of frustrated but I don't think anyone would have been that upset and I don't think Dortmund fans compared to any other fixture that's any other time this fixture's taken place in recent years and they've usually routinely been smashed I don't think Dortmund fans were too fussed about the game either which is just left it with a very weird and empty feeling yeah yeah I, I feel like this was probably the strangest set of circumstances for a so-called classicer that, that I can remember, one that happened relatively late in the season. I mean, this is the, the, the fourth to last game of the year that I suppose the folks who were putting a, the fixture list together must have considered that this might have some ramifications. And for it to just not have any of that, and as you said, to have a pretty it, – it had kind of a wan feeling. I mean, in a way, <laughs> the only player who was well up for it, and maybe a little too much up for it, was, was Benjamin Favar. I mean – to me, this is not the first time that I've seen this sort of thing. I feel, and maybe others agree, I don't know. I feel like he's turning into one of the more dirty players in the league. He puts a lot of bad challenges in and doesn't always get punished. Yeah, it's, it's always difficult to 
like the second one, especially the, the the penalty that wasn't given, it's difficult. Where do you separate it between like a dirty or a bad challenge or just a player being too slow to react? And I think maybe sometimes that's why we don't see that from other Bayern players um, who are maybe just as aggressive, if you like. Thinking of you know, Leon Goretzka or Nicolas Sula or Upamakano, who I think in his own way can be a little bit clumsy at times, not overly aggressive. Uh, Joshua Kimmich is another one who is a really aggressive player. But I feel like when Joshua Kimmich brings someone down, you know when it was on purpose and when it wasn't. And maybe that just speaks a little bit to the defensive quality of Benjamin Pavard, who, remember, was signed originally as a centre-back and, and was at Stuttgart, and everybody thought he was going to become a centre-back. And I think maybe he's just defensively not quite as sharp as everybody had hoped, or he's not developed into the player defensively that people had hoped. And I don't think it's an accident that Bayern are said to be shopping around for a right-back and have, have brought a couple of right-backs in the past couple of years since Pavard assumed that position from Kimmich. But no one's actually managed to really compete with Pavard. And I think when we see that happen, it's always hard, right, to talk about ways that Bayern can improve and be a better team. But when you look at their strongest team and their squad, I think right-back's the one that maybe sticks out the most, where, yeah, you could see a player coming in and taking that position off of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and interestingly, I mean, clearly he is pretty highly thought of by a lot of people at that club. He gets into the team most of the time. You know, with Niklas Zuda moving on, and you know, I, I understand also that there is some uh, movement from uh, from above to give Tangi Nianzu a little bit more of a chance at center back. I mean, maybe maybe that's where Pavar ends up if they do go out and spend some money on a right back. I don't know. Let's move on. Let's talk to the big picture here. Ten years of Bayern championships. I'm going to be honest. I'm like so far past tired of it. I am at the point of. I'm at my wit's end. I mean, I have a particular relationship with this in, in that like I basically started following and covering the Bundesliga pretty intensely first at Deutsche Welle and then, then you know, doing this podcast. I don't know, maybe in like 2006, 2007, that season. So like the first six or so years that I was covering German football, it was very, very up in the air who was going to win the title. We had Stuttgart, we had Wolfsburg, we had a couple of Dortmund titles, and, you know, Bayern won the rest, but, you know, it was, it felt like the league was on the rise, not only because the, the national team was was improving, you had a lot of young players coming through who eventually moved on to other countries, but at the right time, after they had already made a big impact at whatever club they were at. And now, I feel like the the league is in a really, really, really bad spot right now. Like they have a problem that is going to be very difficult to solve when it comes to the Bayern's dominance. They have all kinds of financial disadvantages vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the entire Premier League and, you know, a lot of big clubs elsewhere in Spain, especially. And I'm really worried about the future of the Bundesliga. How do you feel? I feel like we can have this discussion and talk about 50 plus one, or we can have this discussion and say, we're not going to talk about 50 plus one. Mm. Or, we, or we can do both. I mean, like, yeah, I don't think anybody do it. Why not? really, I don't think many people want 50 plus one to, to go. And mm. I don't think many people would be interested in celebrating or engaging in much closer title races that included you know, oligarchs or whoever owning a couple of clubs who then maybe could compete with Bayern Munich. So I'm just going to park that there, I think. And then we talk about 
a world where 50 plus one stays. And the only solutions that I see to a more competitive Bundesliga are solutions that would make Bayern Munich weaker and less likely to compete in Europe. So, you know, uh, a much more equal split of TV money, for example, or like something that I personally would love to see happen. Unfortunately, it requires the clubs to give a green light to it. And, and it's something obviously Bayern Munich are never going to vote for rules that make them weaker and make them poorer, especially when they want to win the Champions League every single season. I, I would love to see the European pots the money that goes to the clubs in the Bundesliga for getting far in the Champions League, for well, for qualifying firstly, then going far in Europa League or wherever. I would love to see all of that money just split between all 18 Bundesliga or all 36 Bundesliga and Spider Bundesliga teams. I think we've seen a situation with the pandemic where teams are, in order to compete, in order to stay at the top, and I'm not talking about teams that have been, or clubs that have been mismanaged like Haasfau or, or Werder Bremen or Schalke. The, there are teams that haven't suffered mismanagement, that in order to try and fight for their place to remain in the Zweite Bundesliga or try and reach the promised land of the Bundesliga, stretch their financial capabilities. And we will see it down the line as the gap between the, the richest and, the, and, the, and the, the rest just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. We'll just see that those clubs take more risks and more gambles to stay in the professional leagues or to reach the Bundesliga or to maybe crack European football. Like Not everybody can be run as perfectly as Freiburg or Union Berlin and we've just seen in the last week where even when you are as perfectly run as Freiburg or Union Berlin like a, a cup final and maybe one or two years the odd year in Europe like that's it that's the ceiling that's the dream like we don't live in a world anymore where you can be a really smart great football club and a 10-year project could see you become the champions of Germany that doesn't exist there's obviously not a problem that's unique to Germany but Bayern have set a completely new bar. And I think that's why the discussion has to be calm around how things can change, because this isn't anything to do with... So often this discussion gets boiled down into like, oh, Dortmund aren't good enough or aren't smart enough or Leverkusen dropped too many points. There's a bit of healthy league. The leagues you talked about, that Stuttgart won and that Wolfsburg won and that Dortmund won twice were leagues where the teams who won the league would lose four or five times a season. That was normal. Is it healthy that the team that's top of the league, that it's basically impossible for the team in 17th or 18th to take points off them during a season? You know, it's. I think when Dortmund won the league in 2012, they set a new Bundesliga points record of, of 81 points. Bayern are on track to beat that this year. And I think of the 10 years that they've won the league, it will be the, the eighth time or seventh time that they've beaten that record. That which was an all-time Bundesliga record. It's the record number of points before Dortmund did that in 2012 was 78. In the last 10 years, the fewest points Bayern have ever had was 78. Before 2012, before that one Jurgen Klopp team that won two titles in a row and made the Champions League final, Bayern Munich would have picked up more points than any other Bundesliga champion in every single one of the past 10 years. This, for me, is not a problem that other teams are not good enough or are not smart enough. And that's not to say that they've been run perfectly. I think Dortmund have made a lot of mistakes. The difference is that Dortmund and anybody else in the league now basically have to have a perfect season and hope that it's Bayern's weakest season in a four or five year run. And that those two things have to coincide for us to have any chance of a new champion. And that is a really, really sad state of affairs. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that dynamic where 
all of the chasing pack, whether it's Dortmund or, you know, increasingly Leipzig, to a lesser extent, the likes of Leverkusen or, or Gladbach in the years that they were good, you have to play perfectly and you have to hope for Bayern to screw up, which just doesn't happen enough. But even when you think about the kinds of growing pains, I mean, you know, Bayern under Niko Kovac were not great. <laughs> even then, even when they, you know, went through a period of just not clicking and having, you know, a lot of um, sort of unrest within the squad, you know, Thomas Miller being <laughs> being marginalized. How stupid does that seem now? <laughs> even still, you, you can't sort of pounce on an opportunity like that. Or even this season where, where you know, Bayern, obviously they've been, they've been quite good for the most part, but not maybe as good as the Bayern of four or five, six years ago. You still can't do it. Other than that one misstep, I would say, of, of trying to force sort of a, a square peg into the very round hole that is Bayern with a coach like Niko Kovac, Bayern have not really made any significant missteps. And most other clubs in that sort of small club of, you know, aspirants really have, either in, in you know, the coaching search or on the transfer market. I'm not ready to totally give up hope that if you make that just right coaching move, if you get, you know, two or three true impact players in a couple of transfer windows, that it's possible. I guess maybe maybe I'm just being a bit of uh, – <laughs> An endless optimist here, but like, ah, I, I I hate to think that this is going to be the situation for the foreseeable future, even though all evidence points in that direction. I mean, you just mentioned Thomas Müller, with what, two or three years away from a, a, a Bayern without Thomas Müller and without Robert Lewandowski, but I also think we said that three or four years ago about Ribery and Robert, so... I'm not willing to say that that'll be it. That'll be the turning point. Yeah, they, they swallowed the, the losses of Gregory Hoban and, and Lahm in the space of about a year and continued to be basically just, I mean, a couple of years later when they won the Champions League, they were like as good as, as they ever were, losing not just some of the best players in the league, but some of the best players in Bayern Munich's entire history, all in, in one go. Yeah, I mean, Schweinsteiger, you can add obviously to that group as well. So, it's tough to imagine a world. I think the the difference the difference between Bayern and everybody else and making missteps in a perfect world and stuff. Like as you said, like they've not made many missteps. Maybe they have, but the gap, the financial gap, is so big that it just doesn't even matter. Like would Bayern Munich again now, given the choice, spend was seventy million on Luca Hernandez? Was it eighty million on Luca Hernandez? <laughs> like would they go yeah. anywhere near that transfer fee again? But you know what? Bayern Munich are so rich that they can have an 80 million player who, I guess, I, mean, I don't think he's been a disaster. He's not, fine. Not he's by any fine. means. Yeah, but I mean, you've watched him the past three years now. And if you didn't have any idea and someone told you he cost 30 million, you would say, yeah, that sounds about right. They can afford for 50 million to just go to waste. And, and, and you know, we mentioned the, the, the transfer missteps, the like ones that stick out for Dortmund. Like Andre Schuller, for, like Dortmund can't swallow the misstep, and that's the difference. That's the really big difference is that Bayern can basically that they could they could they could spend a hundred million this summer, and every single penny could be wasted, 
and then they could still spend 100 million the following summer. Dortmund would get stuck with players that then are on too big wages for anyone else to take them after a failed season at Dortmund. And then you're left with maybe trying to loan them out, but you do that, which means no money comes in for you to replace them. And obviously Dortmund aren't alone in that. I think you know, like Leipzig, uh, a similar situation where they can't really afford for these big transfers. If they make big transfers, not to pay off. We're talking about Dortmund being linked with, with Karim Adeyemi for a, a record fee of 30, 35 million euros. Sure, like that looks on the surface like a pretty good deal and another young player with huge potential and but he's going to have to come in and replace early Haaland's record of a goal a game essentially and if he doesn't do that then what are they going to do because Dortmund don't have the pockets to then make another 30 million euro transfer to try and correct one that didn't quite go to plan the way that Bayern do yeah I mean it's interesting that you bring up the transfer market as being you know an area where Bayern have pretty much a decisive advantage. Just the funds that they have on hand. We all have have heard the numbers. I mean, in some years we've we've had turnover numbers from Bayern, which are not quite twice as much as their um, closest rival, but close. There was a certain proposition. I, I think it was it was in a Rory Smith article in the New York Times this past weekend, sort of reacting to Bayern winning the last ten championships. And I think there was a pretty interesting proposition put in there about maybe the transfer market evolving a little bit, or at least the ground rules as far as the Bundesliga, not so much within the Bundesliga, but where the Bundesliga sits in the sort of more broader context. Mostly that, you know, now that the Premier League has this overwhelming sort of financial dominance that like, you know, <laughs> Aston Villa can now basically, if they were to make some sort of, you know, proposition of high wages, high transfer fee, like ostensibly a club that is very mediocre in the Premier League or even poor can probably offer more money to a player than can Bayern. And we're already seeing Bayern players get a little friskier when it comes to renewing their contracts. And, you know, the proposition essentially was that you know, Bayern have this advantage because they don't have to worry about selling players. They don't have to worry about selling players in terms of other teams taking them off them. They don't have to worry about them in terms of it being a big component of their financial health, which, you know, Dortmund and Leipzig, their two biggest rivals, are constantly looking for, for value propositions, bringing in young players who they can then sell for more. And, you know, Bayern just doesn't have to think that way. But maybe they're going to have to, either that they're going to have to – you know, try and find more rough diamonds, young players, or, you know, basically fend off the interest of even bigger, richer clubs in England. And maybe over the next 10 years, Bayern will find something to stumble over there. Does that seem believable? It's, yeah, like that's that's the next question, I guess. That's the that's the argument, this, this whole Super League argument, I guess the... It, it kind of already exists, right? Like yep. it just is the Premier League. It is English football. And that's a group that nobody can, it doesn't matter how historic you are. Like not anybody can just join. You have to kind of be in England. Yeah. I've always said like the point of the Super League would be to compete against the Premier League, mm -hmm. not yeah, be with this, them. Yeah, like if was, a Super League happens, it'll be continental Europe without Britain, you know? And, and this is why we, it was Barcelona and Juventus and Real Madrid pushing for it because they knew all of the money goes into the Premier League. The global money goes into the Premier League now. And they knew the only way to keep up 
at some point, the only way to keep up with the Premier League teams will be to join them and and you know kick out <laughs> kick out the bottom half of the Premier League basically. So they're not allowed to be a part of it. Yeah, it's. I mean, Serge Gnabry seems like he might leave. Mm-hmm. Nicolas Zula, obviously. I mean, there's a mixture of. I, I don't think that's so much money as wanting to feel wanted. <laughs> And, and deciding to leave Bayern. Um, Antonio Rudiger is going to leave Chelsea and apparently it sounds like Bayern kind of tried to speak to his people and then backed away very, very quickly when they heard how much money he was demanding. And then he's going to move to Real Madrid, but he's been linked with Manchester United as well. They, if Bayern are going to set themselves a ceiling of what they're willing to pay, then it will be harder to attract or keep particular level of, of individuals the advantage that remains compared to everybody else in the problem is the context of the Bundesliga right they're, they're still so much richer than everyone else they can still offer anyone maybe below that level that like Real Madrid 15 20 million ridiculous the number a year level like Bayern can still outdo anyone in Germany and I don't know how much it solves a Bundesliga issue if if Bayern were to be a little bit more restrained in, in their squad building in the future. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do think that whatever advantage that they hold in terms of prestige and showcase opportunity, which is to say being in the Champions League year after year after year after year and, and going into it with an aspiration of going far or winning it, that's not going to go away. I mean, like if, if, you know, if Newcastle waves a bunch of money in your face, you know, that's nice. But like also playing in the Champions League and, you know, maybe getting picked by your national team is better than playing for a whatever Premier League side. So I'm not entirely convinced that like this problem is going to gonna be solved by that. No. Okay. So I, I mentioned Dortmund and Leipzig as sort of the, the, the two teams who seem likeliest if, if someone's going to turn over the apple cart. Is there anybody else who can sort of set themselves up to – be in the conversation? I mean, Leverkusen probably in terms of, of track record over the past 20 years or whatever might have the ability to do that. I, I don't really see much past that group. No, me too. And, and again, it requires that perfect storm of all things, right? Like Leverkusen, can you imagine if like it, it would require the kind of luck and, and fortune and everything coming together that were like Leverkusen a few years ago when Havertz exploded. And then you've had this year with Florian Wirtz and, and Musa Diaby's taking, and Patrick Schick have both taken jumps to new levels. And then you've got Robert Andres, who's been a really, really good signing. And Jeremy Fringpong has been a great signing. And I think done a better than a lot of people would have expected adapting to the league and the country and, and a higher level of football than he's played before. Like, you kind of need all those things to happen all at one time and have a really great coach as well at the same time. But you need them to all have it. Like the window is so small for, for Leverkusen, for, for a Gladbach. Like the window is so small. You need, like I say, it would need to have like Wirtz come through and, and explode in the same year that a Havertz does it. And the same year that Patrick Schick and Musa Diaby take the leap. And the same year that you have someone like Robert Andrich as a, as a transfer who comes in on not huge money, but turns out to be a hell of a lot better than everybody expected. That's the kind of perfection and that, that we're talking about, I think. And for anyone beyond, I would include Leverkusen in that, for anyone beyond Dortmund and, and Leipzig to, to even get close. I think if Bayern have a bad year, then Dortmund and Leipzig, it, it's really simple, right? It's 
why are Bayern so far ahead of everyone else? Money. So who are the two teams can catch them? The next two who have the most money. If Bayern do slip up, if something horrible happened and you know Lewandowski left and the replacement was was really struggling to adapt to the team or Lewandowski stayed, but he's getting old and, and picked up a few injuries and missed half a season. If those sorts of things happened, then it's very hard to imagine anyone outside of the, the next two clubs in, in Dortmund and Leipzig being in the position to take advantage of it. Yeah, I think that's just about the size of it. We should probably move on from, from our, um, <laughs> I don't know, maybe justifiably pessimistic view of this, but you know, we want to see excitement. Everyone wants to see, you know, a bit of a hurly-burly at the top of the table. But if we really want that in the present day, we have to look toward the bottom of the table, maybe. And other places, too, but we kind of concentrated on that last week on Talking Foosball Direct. Let's talk about the relegation fight. I think we had some pretty decisive results. We'll be addressing the ones um, that had, had a positive cast for at least a couple of teams first. A couple of teams who were on the fringes of the relegation fighter, who have sort of threatened to get themselves back into the mire, had big results from the weekend. One being uh, Wolfsburg. Friday night, you know, I think we all know as as fans of any particular team, when you get a big win on Friday night, <laughs> you pretty much can just watch the rest of the weekend, like, just vibing. <laughs> it's magic. So I, I really feel good. For the, the Falafel Wolfsburg fans getting this result, 5-0 win. They didn't even have to put up with any suspense. All five goals came in the first half. Uh, mine says Nicholas Tower was sent off after 23 minutes for a last man foul that, you know, led to the 2-0 goal. Perfect, perfect stuff from them. Two from Jonas Vind, three from Max Kruse. They pretty much got to take the whole second half off. Additionally, we had Augsburg getting a 2-0 win over Bochum. This was a bit weird because Bochum, they've been so good at home this season. And they they just stepped on their own dick in this game. Uh, <laughs> Andre Hahn scored the 1-0 goal after Maxim Leitch totally made a mess out of trying to clear up a, a simple, simple Route 1 attack. And then Danilo Suarez committed a moronic foul on Daniel Caligiri, who was on his way out. He was dribbling out of the penalty area, away from danger. But Suarez uh, still fouled him in the penalty area. Okay, so Wolfsburg, let's say mathematically still not 100% safe, but basically 98.99% safe. <laughs> yeah. Augsburg, you know, I would say they're, they're getting closer. I think they maybe need one more result to get themselves into that position. Still, I don't think that there's a lot good that either of these two teams can take away from the season. Certainly, Wolfsburg expected a lot more. They were a Champions League side heading into the season. And Augsburg, I think they don't set goals very high down there. But considering they have this platform of being in the league for over a decade now and you know spending some pretty big money on, on Ricardo Pepe, among other players – they have to expect a little bit more. If, if you were if you were trying to sort of push these two teams forward, what what would you think are sort of the the main things that you need to fix or get better at? I would be amazed if January first, twenty twenty three, and Florian Crawford is still the coach of Wolfsburg. I think he's still in the job because Jörg Schmacker, even Jörg Schmacker, didn't want to fire two coaches in the space of about two months and knew that if he did, then he didn't really have any options to come in and replace Crawford. 
So I think that's the only reason he survived a run of what was it six or seven defeats in a row, kind of leaving leading into Christmas. I yeah, I would be stunned. I think Wolfsburg. You get to a certain point of the season when you're in a relegation battle, and it doesn't really matter what your ambitions were at the start of the season. You have to just turn around and say, like, right, we just have to survive. And I think changing coach would have not necessarily helped that cause. And now it looks like with Caulfield in charge, they have managed to survive. I find it very hard to imagine that another season of mid-table would be... Yeah, and mid-table where it's like, you're a mid-table team fighting against relegation, not a mid-table team who, if you put a few wins together, are going to be in the European hunt. I don't think that's going to be tolerated at Wolfsburg next season. I think they're going to be expected to be seventh or eighth at worst. So I find Florian Kofa very confusing because I thought he was great for two years at Bremen. And then I thought the last year at Bremen was awful. And you kind of just chalked it up to everything going a bit stale and spiraling out of control. And then he had his time off and he came back to Wolfsburg and you thought, now we'll actually see what he's made of. Like, how has he? What has he learned? How does he respond? And it doesn't look like he's learned anything. It looks like the last year of Florian Kohfeldt, and not the first two years of Florian Kohfeldt, is the one that I wouldn't say is the real one, but the one that Wolfsburg have ended up with. So unless something big happens there in preseason, I I don't see it. Augsburg, when you say like they set a low bar for themselves. I think you're right, but then you think, but surely as Augsburg, you're looking at Mainz and Freiburg and Union and thinking, well, that like clearly it's possible, so that has to be our ambition. But I just see, I mean, firstly, I see a lot of negative football. I I think that Niklas Dorsch was a superb transfer in the summer. He impressed me so much playing for Germany under-21s. And I was surprised that a bigger club and a more ambitious club than, than Augsburg didn't sign him. And to see him in the midfield playing this like teller fighter anti relegation type football and not being able to get on the ball and dictate a game because Augsburg aren't set up to ever dictate a game, no matter the opposition, uh, is a real waste of talent. So I don't think the problem's exclusively a lack of talent. I think it's a part of it. But again, I think a more ambitious coach than than Marcus Weinze maybe gets more out of what's available and I think they're almost in a comfort zone where they're not getting relegated. So why risk playing more ambitious football to maybe finish 8th or ninth or 10th? Like If the bar is to not finish 16th or 17th, then they're achieving their aims and there's no reason to risk the teething problems of a new style and a few new players coming in when it possibly might not work. That's the impression that I get from Augsburg, that they're actually just quite happy. They're not looking at Mainz and Freiburg and thinking that could be us. I think they're actually just really quite happy to stay in the Bundesliga. We know that there's like from from the US especially there's, there's big new investment in the club now. Whether or not that changes the level of ambition I guess we'll find out in the next couple of years. Yeah. I'm with you when it comes to sort of opening things up a little bit. Maybe that's also just a personal taste thing because uh, you know, that's the problem. <laughs> we we kind of rag on 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 Augsburg a lot for being negative, and I'd like to see them um, offer something more. But also, I'm given a little bit of pause by the idea that Marcus Weinzel is the problem. I, I don't think he's like a, a genius or anything, but I do think he is a capable coach. And I think maybe taking a page from 
you know, some of these more stable clubs playbook and, and sort of sticking with someone. If you, if you trust him, at least to a degree, just hang on, you know, establish a culture, see what happens. I want to stress, I didn't, I didn't mean that he was incapable, but I don't know if he's capable of much more than an Augsburg team that finishes maybe 13th. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I mean, they snuck into Europe once upon a time, but that that was a different a different Bundesliga to today, I think. Okay, we didn't quite get to the the third of the three relegation battle games that I wanted to to hit, but we'll we'll, we'll do that after the break. See you in a moment. Here comes part two of Talking Foosball Direct. I'm Matt Herman. My guest is Liz Ambrose. We are now set to talk about Hertha BSA's 2-0 win over VfB Stuttgart. Yeah, this was not one for the connoisseurs of uh, slick, sexy football, but it was a colossal win for Hertha in the end. It was a 2-0 a result at home. Really helps them. Really hurts the Swabians. Not a really dominant performance. Hertha scored very early and very late and didn't do a lot in between. But luckily for them, neither did Stuttgart. Four-point lead now for Hertha over VfB. VfB are in the, the relegation playoff spot in 16th. Hertha uh, four points above them, which means they, they, they can't, you know, mess up and <laughs> piss away that lead in one week. It'll take two weeks to do it. <laughs> What did you make of this game? It's clearly a super emotional game. Interestingly, I thought you had the first goal from a player who had pretty much been frozen out for most of the season under the previous two coaches, Pal Dardai and Typhon Corkut. Davy Zelka played very little, getting the first goal with some style. And then the final goal from Ishak Belfadil, who seems to have had a somewhat rocky relationship with uh, Felix Magat being left out of the squad the week prior, but coming on and getting a really nice goal with a very cheeky cutback and real emotional eruptions in in this game. This has been another very turbulent season for Hertha. You had emotional eruptions of a different kind from Stuttgart players, you know, crying on the pitch after this game, knowing that, that you know, they're probably going to be in for a relegation playoff. There was a lot of... Uh, a lot of emotional charge in this game, I thought. Yeah, it hurt especially, I guess, this situation when when they beat Hoffenheim, then I think everybody at the club kind of thought, you know, it's the first game under a new coach, even though he wasn't there on the touchline himself. I think everybody had such a good feeling that that was it and things had changed. <laughs> and reader, things had not changed. They lost the next two and were just dragged right back into the mess that they thought that they'd maybe started to claw themselves out of. So this, and then to, to win at Augsburg was big in another really ugly game, but to then follow that one up with another win and a win particularly over the team that was just a point behind them before the game is huge, really huge. With this, We're at a point of the season where there is not much time to to get back from a, a four-point gap like they have now over, over Stuttgart. So you know, Stuttgart still have to play Bayern as well. I mean, who knows how much Bayern are on the beach by that point, but they have to play Bayern, they have to play Köln on the final day, who it looks like will be competing for some sort of European football. So Stuttgart are going to have to 
pull something out of nowhere to pick up four points or or more to catch Hertha from here. I think so. I think everybody knows that this was massive for for both teams for completely opposite reasons. David Zerka, I really enjoyed the absolute confidence that he wasn't offside. Like the way he just shook his head and looked at the ref and looked at the linesman. Yeah, he wagged his, his finger very vigorously. <laughs> he just look at like there is absolutely no way that I was offside. Like to to do it he'd have looked so stupid if he was offside. And you know, these things often there is just a matter of inches in it. So there's no way he could have known for sure that he wasn't. I really enjoyed that. For for Stuttgart I Stuttgart, there's one team every year at the bottom of the table where you watch them and you can see that something's broken, but you you kind of, you think, you rate the players and you rate the coach. Then every year there's a team down there and you think, ah, like they'll, they'll, they've got time, they'll figure it out, <laughs> they'll survive. And then the weeks creep on and you realize that actually they're in a lot more trouble than you realized. And maybe, maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe they're in a lot more trouble than they realized at some point too. And I think, the first half of the season with Stuttgart was written off as, ah, well, you know, they've had a lot of injuries and when those players are back, they'll improve. Well, they haven't. And in some cases, the players have come back and got injured again and they're still missing. So that assumed solution hasn't even existed anyway. And that's where they find themselves now. Where like last year, I thought, I don't think they play that differently to last year. I thought last year they were, how do I put it? I thought they played really slow football until they played it really quickly. Like, they would be really patient if the ball was around the back line and, and with the goalkeeper and in midfield with, with Endo and Mangala. In possession, they would play really patiently. But then it would get to Sosa or Silas on the wings and then the game would really speed up and go really fast. I think when you play that patient kind of football, you need guys who kind of break the system a little bit and play their own way. And, and Silas, more than anyone to an extreme, was that guy last season. Well, he's been injured basically the entire season. And then all of the threat comes from Borna Sosa crossing the ball on the left. And if the opposition knows that that's the all of the threat, then that's not too hard to deal with either. So a team like Hertha can just stay organized and let Stuttgart play the patient game around the back and do it knowing that as long as we don't really make any huge mistakes, they're not really going to threaten us too much. And that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah I, I thought it was very interesting. After this game, Felix Magat, who of course is well known for his, uh, you know, psychological warfare, mind games, he just talked Stuttgart up to the skies. He was like, "Yeah, I can't. I don't. I don't understand why people are so happy about this result. They came out here and they outplayed us. We need to work harder." Like he immediately was ready to just be like, "You know what? You boys have done nothing. You have everything to prove to me next week." Because Stuttgart weren't good in this game. I mean, neither was Hertha, to be fair. But, like, Hertha no. basically neutralized most of their attack, and they didn't have, I wouldn't say maybe one, two decent chances. So, yeah, I, I, I think this was a, a great result for Hertha, but they, I'm glad to see that uh, Magat still wants more. I think I can solve the, the Davies Elka getting into the team suddenly question as well. Felix Magat, there was a story when he was appointed from his time at Fulham, when he was appointed at Hertha the other week, and Breda Hangeland said that as the captain, he expected you know the new manager to maybe speak to him before the first game and ask what the problems were and what he thought they could change or do differently or do better. And none of that happened. And in the hotel the night before the first game, Magat just called him over and asked him 
do you want to play tomorrow? And Hailan said, yes. And Magat replied, great, then you're in the 11. Last week, Kevin Prince-Boateng said that the exact same thing happened to him before the Augsburg game. But Kevin Prince-Boateng seemed to think it was a joke. He told German TV that like, oh yeah, <laughs> the, the coach came up and joked like, hey, do you want to play? And no, Kevin, I don't think that was a joke. I think Felix Magat was hoping you would say yes. And if you said no, you just wouldn't have been picked. And I don't understand any of these mind games because I don't know who he's trying to psych out. Half the time it feels like it's his own goddamn players. And I, But whatever, they got three points and it worked. Yeah, just to bring this to a close, I read an article today for the first time, I think, Felix Magat, maybe it was on the Sunday appearance before the press or Monday morning rather, was asked if he would consider sticking around or what his thoughts were about his future. And for the first time, that particular can of worms was, you know, open to the, the slightest, slightest degree. And, uh, yeah, if, if, if they do stay in the league, it will be very interesting to see if that, uh, if that conversation goes anywhere <laughs> and what it leads to. Okay. We got to move on. We got to talk about uh, some of the teams who are, you know, involved in Europe this week. A couple of very, Tasty, tasty fixtures coming up in the Europa League. That's all we got anymore, folks. However, the teams didn't exactly set themselves up uh, with with rousing successes. Leipzig, they lost, but they, they seem to have understood the brief of what was asked of them over the past couple of weeks. They went all out to advance in the Europa League over Atalanta. They went all out coming back from a goal down against Union. And then they just kind of ran out of gas in this league game. Sven Mikkel and Kevin Behrens each scored in the last five minutes here. I gotta, I gotta give special praise to Mikkel. He scored after 22 seconds in this game. And that back heel assist for mm-hmm. Behrens was filth. That was the kind of like audacious move that like just, you know, it warms your heart, man. When I saw that, I was just like, oh my God, he just did that. I can't remember the last time I saw something on a football pitch that so encapsulated the idea that somebody could have eyes in the back of their head. Like the the, the presence of mind to know that your teammate's going to be right behind you. When you've just scored a goal three minutes ago and have a really good chance, actually, of scoring a second one. And, yeah. You know, I, you were attacking yeah. the goal at speed. You're probably 10 yards out. Like you're close like, to goal. It's one of the assists of the season, if not the assist of the season. It's fantastic. Eintracht, they too did not get a win on the weekend, although they did get a draw. It was a 2-2 against Hoffenheim. Very sloppy start from them. Evan Indica <laughs> scored an own goal and nearly set up another within the first 25 minutes, but he actually made things good. After 32 minutes, he scored at the correct end. These two teams traded goals in the second half. Hoffenheim maybe could have could have sealed a win late, but d- didn't manage it. So let's talk about the games that face Leipzig and Eintracht this week. Maybe maybe Leipzig first, talking about them. They're at home to Rangers. I think maybe it's, it's very tough to say. I mean, Rangers obviously have a bigger sort of global footprint, um, but West Ham play in the best league in the world. What do you make of, of Leipzig's date with Rangers on Thursday? I think Leipzig have to win at home because I, I think that – yeah. To go to Rangers haven't played in a European semi final for about, well, 15 years. 
um, they they lost the the Europa League final to Zenit St Petersburg in whatever year that was. Oh um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, since then they've gone into administration and suffered like four relegations because of that, and had to fight their way all the way back up to the top flight. And last season won the league for the first time since all of that began. This year they're probably not going to win the league, so. They are in the Scottish Cup final, but like their their season now kind of boils down to these few games. Leipzig's it may play in Leipzig's hands that Rangers play Celtic in a in a game that could decide the Scottish title on on Sunday. So they'll maybe have an eye on that, but they do not want to go to Ibrox when the fate of of the Scottish title will probably be known with anything other than a lead because they will have fifty thousand people willing the ball into one goal and out of the other one and creating a hellish atmosphere to play in, I think. So, yeah, it's it's a tough one. We saw Rangers, they're really good at set pieces. We saw that against Dortmund. We saw that they punished mistakes against Dortmund. I think the one thing you can say about Leipzig since Domenico Tedesco came in is that they don't really make mistakes. They, I think they play very, very, very risk-averse football and then lean on the quality that they have in the final third to make the difference in games. The, obviously, Christopher and Kunku being the obvious one. Player for player, you, you'd have to back Leipzig to win this. But on a European night away from home, I, I really think that they have to win this first leg and, and dominate the game and not give Rangers a sniff. Because if they take anything back to Ibrox, they're going to have a horrible 90 minutes a week from now, or almost two weeks from now. Fun fact I learned this past week, Tyler Adams of RB Leipzig grew up a very big Rangers fan. His, uh, his stepfather. Really? Yep. Big, big Rangers fan. Apparently, you know, <laughs> taught his dog to bark when the word Celtic was said. Oh my God. So I, I'm sure he'll get a, get quite a tickle out of playing or, or, or even sitting on the bench at Ibrox about Eintracht and they're away in the first leg to West Ham. How do you feel about um, Hammers' form at the moment? The Hammers, uh, they, they, they lost to Chelsea this past weekend, but they almost held them to a draw despite being being down to 10 men for the last few minutes. So are you convinced that they are um, in the kind of shape to look at a team like Eintracht and think about them more as, ah, they're eighth place in the Bundesliga, as opposed to, ah, they just beat Barcelona at Camp Nou. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I think West Ham enjoy playing the team that can upset other teams. I think it's a really tricky game for Frankfurt because I, in terms of causing an upset, I'd say that Barcelona style is exactly what Frankfurt will want to play against and, and as a team, but also just as a club, like the, the way that, the fans are and the way that the, the atmosphere always is around Eintracht. They love to crash a party. Yeah, like, and you expect so, like a, a really aggressive approach, uh, really taking the underdog thing on board and, and playing with it and being happy with it. I It felt like a perfect recipe for them to, to win against Barcelona, to upset Barcelona, like the, the classic beautiful football team the keep possession jabby in charge now and all of that kind of thing I thought that was set up perfectly like I don't think Eintracht would have done that against teams with less holistic philosophies if you want to put it that way West Ham do not have that not with David Moyes in charge they're a lot more they're very effective but they're a lot more agricultural and I think West Ham will be happy to turn around and say to Eintracht okay then come and break us down and not 
hit us on the break and beat us in in duels, but come and break us down and we will match you physically. West Ham, another team that are fantastic at set pieces. The the big thing for Frankfurt is that West Ham have no defenders. Like all of their centre backs are injured. Well, three of their centre backs are injured. So they played they played their Chelsea, as you said, on Sunday. They lost one nil. They played a back three with just one centre back, and and the other two were, I mean, usually nominally a left back and a right back had to fill in as the other two centre backs. Usually West Ham would prefer to play a back four, but with only one centre-back, that's not really an option. So they're going to have to compromise a little bit. This will be really, really interesting, I think. This will be a really, really good game. Uh, two teams that will give absolutely everything. There's not a clear favourite for me. And where you have Leipzig, I think, will control the ball against Rangers and we'll sort of see what comes of it. See who can wrestle the upper hand. I could see Frankfurt West Ham becoming a really, really messy end-to-end game full of duels and it could be really really exciting I think that both teams have some fantastic players and it's going to be really really interesting yeah yeah I I think that sounds appropriate I mean these really are two clubs that you know (laughs) that live for the drama so (laughs) why not play that way guys real quick before we move away from this I wanted to bring up the ticket allocation issue which caused a whole lot of upset in Barcelona where, you know, a lot of, a lot of home fans ended up selling their tickets, you know, by ostensibly legal or not legal means to traveling Eintracht fans. And, and, you know, West Ham has been very, very clear that they don't want to see that happen, that they are going to strictly prohibit people wearing Eintracht colors from coming into the home or neutral end or whatever. And that they're only going to give 3,000 tickets, mm. pretty paltry of a stadium that size to Eintracht fans. Maybe this is just the sort of like being accustomed to Bundesliga fan culture or sort of stadium culture, but like this strikes me as incredibly petty, petulant stuff. Like, you know, if you want to go to a game and and support the away side, like, you know, do it in a certain degree of moderation, maybe, so you don't (laughs) get into a fight. But like, I think trying to bar away fans outside of the away block is just. It's like tilting at windmills, man. I think it's really poor form. I think it's a really interesting cultural discussion where West Ham know and and fans who have been to a lot of games in English football know. You, you, you can't wear colours. Like going to games in the Bundesliga in Germany for me for the first time was eye-opening to go to a game and you could sit like two rows in front of someone wearing the other shirt. And, and even derby matches. One of the one of the first games I ever went to in Germany was between Gladbach and Düsseldorf, and uh, at Borussia Park. And sat two rows in front of me were two Gladbach fans who were with a Düsseldorf fan who was clearly friends with them, but didn't hide the fact he was a Düsseldorf fan. Too was wearing a hat, a shirt, shirt was wearing a scarf, had celebrated when they scored, looked absolutely fuming when Gladbach scored. In England, this culture doesn't exist. And I think when a culture doesn't exist, then it's hard to imagine a world where it becomes something that's normal. So I think for for West Ham fans, and this isn't like a Bundesliga, Premier League, this is an England-Germany thing. This is, if you went to a game in, in the third tier in England and sat in the home end wearing an away shirt, you would not last very long before people got very upset with you. 
and, and didn't take it in good spirits. Uh, I, I, I once saw at a third tier game, I did. I, I once saw Southend United against Leicester City and Leicester back in the days where they were still a third tier team. And it was right near the end of the season. And if Leicester won, they would be promoted. So you can very easily imagine how Leicester fans would do anything to get their hands on a ticket. And uh, Leicester scored quite late on. And the guy about four or five rows behind me jumped up and shouted. Uh, I was in the home end and cheered. And somebody sat to the left or the right of him. I can't remember. Just turned around and hit him. Like, <laughs> which, you know, before the stewards even had the chat, look, the guy wasn't wearing a shirt or a scarf to nothing to indicate he was a Leicester fan other than the fact he was cheering a Leicester goal. There, yeah, there is no, there's no warning that some like for the stewards to even remove someone from that situation. Uh, and it is a weird cultural thing where it's, it's almost, it's almost sacred that you're in the home end or you're in the whole, the away end. And I'm sure there will be Frankfurt fans in the home end uh, in London in on Thursday. And I'm sure they'll realise very, very quickly that they have to not let anybody realise that they are Frankfurt fans. I'm not sure the best way to do that. Maybe tell them that you're just German and living in London and are from Darmstadt and completely despise Eintracht Frankfurt. I don't know. Uh, I'm sure there will be Frankfurt fans who have managed to get tickets in the home end. And I hope for everybody's sake that it does not become apparent to anyone that they are Frankfurt fans, because uh, I think we could see things happen that none of us would like to talk about when it comes to reviewing this game. Yeah. Interestingly, uh, this past week after the, uh, the DFB Pokal semifinal that was in Leipzig, you know, Union brought a really good contingent. They were very happy when Union scored the opening goal of the game. And I saw a TikTok that had made its way over to Twitter, but whatever, of some neutral fans. And, of course, we all know that you know Union is probably a more popular <laughs> club among neutrals than uh, is Leipzig. So two neutrals went there and they cheered when, when uh, Union took the lead. And they were kicked out of the game. And they were, they were shocked, as I think that most German fans would be shocked at that sort of a situation. And I thought it was I, – I mean, as somebody who is, is much more um, accustomed to and, and friendly with, let's just say, German like fan lack of segregation, like I was appalled to see this. I was – I mean, you know, <laughs> given my own sympathies, like I wasn't happy when Union took the lead. But I totally get that like when you're in a stadium as a neutral, like, you know – in Germany, you should be able to cheer a little bit without um, getting kicked out of the stadium. I mean, you're, you'll probably take some stick from people, but the steward shouldn't come and escort you out. That's that's nuts. Well, and the, the the guy, right? The guy was like, "But we're in the neutral block," and the guy said, "Yeah, you can't cheer for goals that are against Leipzig." So that doesn't sound like a very neutral block. Don't sell tickets under the impression that you that people are buying tickets in a neutral part of the yeah, stadium yeah, yeah. if they're only allowed to cheer when one of the teams scores. All right, we got a couple of more games. These were probably games that had more to do with next year's European qualification. We'll go through them pretty quick because we've 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 gotten on a bit. Freiburg and Borussia Mönchengladbach. That was a three-three draw. Pretty wild West style game here. I mean, Gladbach were up two nil inside of fifteen minutes. Then they gave up three goals in the second half and got a super late equalizer from Lars Stindl. Cologne were 3-1 winners over Bielefeld. That's, of course, good news for them and bad news for Bielefeld, who wanted to make up a little ground. Anthony Modest used the opportunity to 
advertise his own brand of coffee beans <laughs> after school. Oh my God. Which I think he's I think he's going to be in a lot of trouble for. He, he went and had a bag next to the goal, went and pulled out this bag of coffee beans with like his face on. And I think Stefan Baumgart said after the game he's on very thin ice, and I'm pretty sure the DFB will have something to say about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, knowing the devotion of Cone fans to uh, their heroes, <laughs> I think whatever the fine is, he will probably make up in uh, <laughs> you know Lincoln bio orders from <laughs> yeah. from his Instagram page. <laughs> Anthony Modest, Mark Uch, Jan Thielmann all got on the score uh, sheet in that game. And also Timo Hubers got on the score sheet at the wrong end. All four goals in that one scored by Cologne players. Bielefeld, yeah, Frank Kramer out this past week. Didn't do anything. They still were bad. Kreuterfurt, speaking of bad, uh, they sealed their <laughs> relegation in a custom style. They got throttled by uh, Bayer Leverkusen. That was a 4-1 win. You know, they did score first, Fjord. But uh, they held their lead for, for three minutes. Really nice backheel volley from Patrick Schick to open things up. And then I thought this was this was really, for me, Serdar Asmund's coming out party. Um, he showed what Leverkusen saw in him. I mean, he had, he had had some near misses in the past. But really, lots of work rate. He rattled field keeper Andreas Linde in, the, in this game to, to get the first goal. Uh, and then really nice technical show-off move. That lobbed assist for Paulinho for the, uh, the, the, I guess, the third goal of the game. Pretty nice. Real quick, looking at these teams, Freiburg, they're still sort of operating with a little bit of an aspiration, I guess, for the Champions League, although I don't see that as... That late goal feels like yeah. it was damning, that late equalizer. Yeah, there's, they're two points off of Leipzig. It would have been a big opportunity for them to, to, to get a little leg up. Cologne are looking pretty good to hold on to seventh place. They have a three-point edge over Hoffenheim. And uh, Leverkusen, this was a big one for them. They leapfrogged Leipzig to go into third. How comfortable are you with with these three teams? You know, all making it into Europe next year, or or is there you know chance of, of a fall off? I think the table will end as it is now. Yeah, I think we've we've reached that point. I think I think Freiburg could have had something to say about that if they'd held on just just had to hold on for two more minutes against Gladbach. And I think we could have been looking at a really, really interesting last couple of match days with with them and Leipzig going head to head for for fourth, and maybe Leverkusen thrown in there as well for the three of them for two spots. But I think the way it is now, I would be surprised if we didn't end up with with the top four as it is, and, and Freiburg, Union, and Köln taking the next spots. All right. Yeah. Well, Hoffenheim. We just don't have that much confidence in you. All right. That is all for this edition of Talking Foosball Direct, which was produced, as always, by Aiden Rantoul. Really good to have you back on, Lewis. It's always a massive, massive pleasure. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Spectacular. You can find him on Twitter, of course, at LG Ambrose. You can read his work on the Foosball in English newsletter and, and a couple of other places. Just, just pay attention to him. Uh, if you want to contact me, I'm at Mr. Matt Herman on Twitter. Talking Foosball Extra will be coming up in a matter of days. Talking Foosball Fantasy, the final days. They'll be back to get you ready for match day 32 at the end of the week. So next in Mullion. Mullion.